What I want to do today is uh, a bit of foundation laying for the series on Mark. And so by necessity, it's going to be a little bit heavier, a little bit more teachy today. But I know that you are up for a challenge because you are Shaw Community Christian Church, right? And you're into it and you're thinkers. That's right. Yep. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate it. <laughs> you're with me, brother. Uh, so this is just for you to follow along and to keep as well because the stuff that we talk about today is going to become very important for understanding the whole story of the Gospel of Mark. We, we very much got the top-down view of Jesus. And we looked at Jesus as the eternal Son of God and the great high priest and the perfect sacrifice and the temple. And it was kind of like this heavenly perspective on who Jesus was. And the great thing about Mark and the Gospels is they kind of change camera angle a little bit for us and suddenly you see this new perspective on Jesus. Uh, not so much the eternal high priest um, or even the Word made flesh, as John describes him, but particularly in Mark, a very earthy kind of Jesus, very human Jesus, this man who walked the dusty roads of Galilee, and things gradually begin to unfold. He starts saying things, he starts doing things, he, he starts performing these miracles and so on, and it just, things start, people start to put it together, and the picture starts to become clearer. So I'm hoping that this will give us a bit of a fresh picture of who Jesus is and build really well on the journey we went through last year in the book of Hebrews. Not that you have to have gone through that to follow what we're doing. But I'm calling this series uh, Mark Remixed, which is not just a funky title, although it is kind of funky. But um, the idea is it actually captures something of what we're going to try and do in this series. You think of a piece of music that gets remixed. The idea is that you, you are taking this original piece and respecting the integrity of the original, but you're now revoicing it and creating maybe new harmonics and some new chords and just changing the texture of this piece of music a little. And that's, that's kind of what we want to do with Mark over these next few weeks and months, is we want to respect and appreciate the brilliance and the integrity of the gospel of Mark, Mark's original work, and at the same time, we want to try and give it a fresh hearing, a fresh voicing in 21st century Auckland. What does this have to say to us? And maybe bring through some, some tones and some themes and some ideas and some stories behind what Mark's saying that give us a little bit more insight into what's going on in his gospel. So I think it's going to be a great journey. We're going to dive in today. And uh, the first thing I want to show you, if, if you've got your Bible open in the book of Mark, when you get to Mark chapter 1, there is something at the beginning that's not there. All right, anybody? The birth of Jesus is not there. That's true. What else isn't there? What about an author? Now, I know some, a lot of your Bibles have these big M-A-R-K written just above, or the Gospel according to Mark or something like that. That wasn't on the original manuscripts. Okay, that, that, unfortunately, that'd be nice, but it didn't happen. The, the letter didn't come down to us, or the gospel didn't come down to us with a nice little name on it. There's no author's name at the beginning. There's no author's name at the end. And so formally, this gospel is actually anonymous, as all of the gospels are. There's no point at which Mark refers to himself. You know how Paul's letters often start with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, yada, yada, yada. There's nothing like that here. But what we do have is a really strong church tradition and some very early uh, statements by some church fathers who attribute this work to this guy called Mark. People who knew what was going on, people who had worked in that era, 
alongside him and with very close colleagues who make statements that let us know Mark wrote this gospel. And on your handout sheet, you have some of those. I'm not going to read them to you because they're quite long and wordy, but you can read them in your own time. And you get the picture from those statements that Mark was an associate of Peter, a good friend and a colleague of the Apostle Peter. And the, really the last we hear from Mark in the New Testament is in 1 Peter, where Peter's talking about Mark working with him in the city of Rome in, in the middle of the first century. That's why we figure Mark was probably written from Rome, and there's probably a whole lot of Peter in this gospel. Probably Peter's influence because Mark wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus. He wasn't one of the disciples. But he's taking Peter's words and Peter's experiences and kind of interpreting them for us. And uh, there's also that really amusing quote in there about Mark having short fingers, if you found that one. And uh, Debbie Taylor and I have a theory that this is why Mark's gospel is only 16 chapters long, because he's got little short fingers and uh, couldn't write 28 chapters like Matthew. So there's a PhD in there, if anyone's interested, I think, in picking that up, the, the theory of why Mark is, so, is such a short gospel. Interestingly, when Matthew and Luke come to write their gospels, so much of what they write is already in Mark. And more than likely, they had copies of Mark in front of them. And so Mark was the first gospel that was written and becomes a source for the others, which makes it even more important. Now, I'm going to let you read more of that in your own time. I don't want to spend heaps of time today talking about the background to Mark. There's a whole study in that if you want to do it. And uh, it's very interesting to do some looking up the verses, see who Mark was. But I want to dive in to the beginning of the gospel of Mark. And I thought, seeing as though... Uh, this is going to be a little bit, a little bit heavier today, that we would just lighten it up at the start, and I would read you this first passage from Mark from the Kiwi Bible. Has anyone seen this? It's fantastic. I got this for Christmas, the Kiwi Bible, and uh, it's, uh, well, let me just read it to you. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 8, for reading from the Kiwi Bible. Here goes the story about Jesus, Son of God. Good, eh? <laughs> way, way back, this bloke called Isaiah wrote, God says, I'm going to send a bit of an advance guard to get things ready. He'll be doing some pre-publicity, endeavoring to call attention to the fact that I'm on my way. So get yourselves organized. Sure enough, this guy John turned up, telling everyone it was about time they changed their crooked ways. People from round and about turned up to hear him, confessing their wrong stuff, and got dunked in the local creek as a sign of a change. This John character was wild as, and a bit of a greenie. He wore all natural substances and ate them too. <laughs> Watch out, you guys, he said. If you think I'm all right, I'm just the supporting act. You wait for the main event. What I'm doing is just for starters, really. The next guy will baptize you with the real McCoy, God's spirit. Yep, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> ah. So that's great stuff. We might have little readings perhaps through the series from the Kiwi Bible, the word of the Lord. So with it... Whether you are reading from the Kiwi Bible or whether you're reading from one of the uh, normal translations, uh, you look at the beginning of this book and it is a little bit strange. It doesn't start with Jesus. Um, it doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. It doesn't even really begin with his life or anything like that. There's mention of him in the first verse, but then we dive into this strange quote from the Old Testament in verse 2 and 3, and then this crazy character, John the Baptist, appears on the scene wearing strange clothes, doing strange things, dunking people in the local creek, and it all just seems like a bit of a random start to the book. Part of the reason for that is that Mark is assuming a whole lot of knowledge on the part of his audience. It's a bit like, have you seen the second Lord of the Rings movie? Uh, that's, that's the one, isn't it, that starts with the snowy mountains of, is it the Southern Alps? You know, and the camera begins with these wonderful scenic shots of mountain peaks. 
And as the second Lord of the Rings movie starts, you hear these, these echoes, these little sound bites from the first movie. And there's a little bit of Gandalf talking, and there's Frodo, and these, these clips from the first. But if you haven't seen the first movie, you're a bit lost. It doesn't make much sense, and it's, it's quite hard to pick up at that stage. These little snippets would be quite confusing. It's a bit like what's happening in Mark's Gospel. It, it's like the first scene of a play, but in the very first scene, there's a whole lot of symbols that are being used. There's a whole lot of pictures and images that are being used that unless you really understand what they mean and what Mark's talking about, unless you're familiar with the story so far, it's going to be a bit lost on you. It's a bit hard to pick it up because Mark's gospel doesn't really start in Mark chapter 1. It really starts way, 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 way back at the beginning of the Old Testament. And so I, I want to take a fairly long run-up to Mark this morning, and we'll land in Mark chapter 1, but let's go back first, right back to the book of Exodus. Keep your thumb in Mark chapter 1 and go back to Exodus. This is really where Mark is starting to draw from. This is a story that's going on in the background. And if you've read the book of Exodus, or even if you haven't, it narrates the story of the very first major founding event in the life of the nation of Israel. The Israelites, the nation of Israel, they didn't start off as a nation. They started off just as a big extended family. And they had become numerous in the land of Egypt, so numerous that the ruling uh, pharaoh, Ramesses II or whatever his name was, decided that these guys were such, so numerous that they were a threat to the dynasty. And so he made them slaves, conscripted them into slave labor. And so you have this, this huge amount of Hebrew slaves working away in Egypt under great oppression for hundreds and hundreds of years until God finally sends Moses in to confront the ruling Pharaoh and demand the release of God's people. And through a series of plagues, God eventually leads them via Moses out of Egypt. And you remember the great miracle that stands in the middle of that story as the Israelites get to this body of water, the Red Sea, which is really the gateway at that time out of Egypt. God miraculously parts the waters. The Israelites go through on dry ground. And when Pharaoh and his army come behind them to chase them, the waters crash back together again. God brings them back and Pharaoh's entire army is decimated. The Israelites move on through the Sinai wilderness. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years until finally God settles them in their own land, the land of Canaan, which is roughly equivalent to the modern Israeli state. So that whole story is called the Exodus. It's what we call the Exodus event. Not just the bit about getting out of Egypt or the Red Sea, but the whole coming out of Egypt, coming into the Promised Land. That's all what's happening in the Exodus. Now let me read you just one verse, and it's on your handout sheet, from the book of Exodus. Just before God began leading them through the wilderness, there's an intriguing little verse in Exodus 23, verse 20, that's important. Tuck this away because it's important for what Mark's about to say. Exodus 23, 20. This is God speaking, and he says, See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. And nobody's quite sure who that angel is. Uh, maybe it was an angel angel. Maybe it was uh, meaning referring to Moses as sort of a messenger or an angel of God. Maybe it was just referring to God's presence leading his people. But whatever it means, God promised to lead his people and guide them and settle them safely in the land of Canaan, which he does. And Joshua, the book of Joshua, records the Israelites settling in that land. Now, you would think that when Israel is settled in Canaan, they've finally got their own place. They would live out their days and for generations in gratitude to God, faithfully obeying Him because of this incredible rescue mission He's taken them on. 
And in fact, precisely the opposite takes place. As the generations go by, Israel slides into this pit of unfaithfulness and rebellion against God. They, they set up their own economy, their own agricultural system, their own politics. They're completely self-sufficient, and really God gets pushed to the edges of their national life, and they stop obeying His commands and laws and decrees, and they start taking the practices of nations around them, including their religious practices, and they get shaky on offering the sacrifices God's commanded them to offer and observing the days God's commanded them to observe and doing on the Sabbath that which God commanded them to do and not do on the Sabbath. And through all of these things, Israel just slides toward unfaithfulness and slides away from God to the point that God starts raising up these guys called prophets to tell Israel that they're going down the wrong track. And you read prophets like Micah and Hosea and Amos and these guys, and they're saying, what are you doing, Israel? You're going down the wrong road. You're becoming an idolatrous nation. And the ways of the Lord are being forsaken. And it gets worse and worse and worse. No one's listening to these guys. And then you get prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah who start to say, if you don't sort your stuff out, God is going to punish you. He's going to hand you over to some foreign nations who are going to come in and they're going to wipe you out and they're going to take you into captivity. And even this doesn't really work. And so in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marches his army against Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem falls to the, to the nation of Babylon. The temple's destroyed, which is really the single worst thing you could imagine happening in the nation of Israel. It's just a devastation of their entire national identity, similar to New Zealand last year after the Rugby World Cup. Right? Kind of equivalent experience. I think theirs might have been just slightly more serious, actually. Uh, the old religious identity decimated. They've been, and God exiles through Nebuchadnezzar. He takes out of the land all of these people and carts them off into captivity in Babylon where they reside for 70 years. Now during that time, it's an absolute low point in the life of Israel. But what starts to happen is there is a hope that begins to be stirred. And particularly the writings of the prophet Isaiah come to the fore as people remember some of the things he'd written about the hope even beyond judgment, a hope beyond punishment, and some promises of restoration, and some promises of healing that Israel would be placed back in their land. Let me read you just one passage from Isaiah that's so important to Mark. This passage really that Mark's gospel begins with comes from Isaiah 40. And it's one of these glimpses of hope in the middle of captivity, in the middle of exile, Here's what Isaiah says, Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, and the rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's a wonderful picture of healing and restoration and comfort for the nation of Israel. This punishment and captivity is not the end of the story. God's going to take you back. He's going to forgive you, and He's going to settle you back in the land. And so 70 years pass, and Israel is eventually allowed to go back. The, the, the empires change, and now you have the Persian Empire come in, and Cyrus is benevolent, and he says, yeah, you can go back. And so some do. And you have Nehemiah rebuilds the walls, and Ezra rebuilds the temple. 
But as the dust settles on this return from captivity, you start to realize that it wasn't quite all it was cracked up to be. For one thing, even though the temple's rebuilt, the glory of the Lord never comes and fills it again. God never comes. There's promise of Isaiah that God, God himself is going to come back and visit you and, and be among you. God never comes back in that way into the temple. A lot of the exiles that were in Babylon don't even bother coming home because they'd set up lives for themselves and their families were perfectly content. And they'd, they'd spent 70 years there and, and, and why come back now? There was never again a high priest in Israel. And so people start looking around and wondering, is this really it? Has the return from exile really happened? Have we really been released from captivity? Or is there something yet to come? Have God's promises really been fulfilled? Or are we expecting something more? And this is where there's a few last prophets in Israel at the close of the Old Testament who crop up even after Israel's come back from captivity and start to speak in the way that the prophet Malachi did. In Malachi 3.1, the final verse we'll read before jumping into Mark. He says this at the beginning of Malachi, God speaking, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And through promises like these, Israel started to believe, you know, the real return from exile hasn't yet happened. Yes, we're back in our land. Yes, we can build a temple and we can offer sacrifices, but the real returning from exile is still ahead. And so expectations began to grow and build and these aspirations that God was yet to come and Yahweh was soon going to visit his people, come in judgment to execute vengeance on all of Israel's enemies and to vindicate his people and establish them as a great light to all nations. God himself would return to Zion, to Jerusalem, where he would reign from his throne and his people would reign with him. These were the promises that were stirred in the opening and the closing rather centuries BC, leading up to the life of Jesus. And yet, a lot of those promises seemed to still be just out of reach. Israel kept being just handed from one foreign nation to another, from the Persians to the Greeks, and then eventually to the Romans. They were still an occupied people. They still didn't have this freedom. These promises, you read the last half of Isaiah, they still weren't coming true. And so you have, even just before the birth of Jesus himself, about 9 BC, you have these pagan emperors the Roman emperor, now the governing authority over the known world, setting themselves up to be the saviour of the people, setting themselves up to be Israel's deliverer, setting themselves up to be the ones who would bring good news and deliverance for all who would follow them. Listen to this quote from Emperor Octavian, dating to 9 BC. I didn't write it down, so I'll have to read it off the screen. Because providence has ordered our life in a divine way, and since the emperor, through his epiphany, has exceeded the hopes of former good news, surpassing not only the benefactors who came before him, but also leaving no hope that anyone in the future will surpass him. And since the birthday of the God, that's referring to Octavian the emperor, was for the world the beginning of his good news, may it therefore be decreed that, and on and on and on it goes. And with those words ringing in your ears, have a look at the very first verse of Mark. Mark starts his gospel with this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. 
What's he saying straight away? Just in case there was any misunderstanding, that foreign pagan emperor, that Caesar who sits there in judgment on the world and claims to be the savior of all people is a counterfeit. He's not the one through whom deliverance is going to come. He's not the one who's going to bring you good news. His birthday didn't mark the beginning of the good news of the gospel, but the gospel, the good news, started with the birth of this guy, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And so straight away, right at the outset of his gospel, Mark's setting Jesus on really a collision course with the ruling authorities and powers of the day, taking the same words that Octavian, that were used to describe Octavian, and using them to describe now the beginning of the good news, the real good news, the real gospel that's going to come through Jesus. And then there's this wonderful quote in Mark 1 verse 2. As it is written, see if you can hear these verses we've just read out in these, in these texts here. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That quote is not just from Isaiah, it's really a merging together of that Exodus quote and the Isaiah quote and the Malachi quote, Mark's putting them all together, and what's he saying? It's coming. It's here. The return from exile has finally arrived. The new exodus is on its way. All the hopes and aspirations of an entire nation are summed up in these verses right here. We read this and we just think, oh, it's just another Old Testament quote. That's pretty boring. Mark's audience read this and suddenly all the dreams and ambitions of Israel came rushing back. The promises of the Exodus that God would go before them. The promises from Isaiah in the midst of captivity that God would draw them back to himself and, and, and undertake a new Exodus among them, a new returning from slavery. The promises of Malachi that God himself would come to restore his people, to come back to the temple, to renew them in the land. All of that is now coming back front and center. And Mark is saying, it is here. Everything you've been waiting for is here. The real new Exodus, the real return from exile, it's coming about before your eyes. And it's coming about through the person of Jesus. And the promises of God returning and the promises of restoring of his people are preceded by the appearance of this, this herald or this forerunner who was going to come and prepare the way for God's return, prepare the way for Yahweh. And so you see straight after Mark 1, 3, this slightly dodgy looking character, John the Baptist, walks onto the scene. And like in so many biblical promises and prophecies, the, the, the fulfillment's not quite what people were expecting, not quite the great triumphant herald and forerunner that might have been in people's minds. Instead, you get this guy, John the Baptist, appearing in the wilderness. But as you look a little bit closer, you start to see what Mark's saying about John. John the Baptist, verse 4, appeared in the wilderness. Why did he appear in the wilderness? Or what happened in the wilderness? The Exodus. <laughs> That's where Israel began as a nation. That's where God first entered into covenant with his people at the foot of Mount Sinai in the wilderness. It was a place of beginnings. It was a place where Israel as a nation emerged and was born. And now you have John the Baptist appearing in the wilderness. The connections. 
Mark's audience would have made these. We struggle to make them sometimes, but this is the, this is, these are the dots that Mark's trying to help us to connect. There's a new beginning. There's a new wilderness experience that's going on. It's the new exodus. John the Baptist comes in the wilderness, and he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And at this point, we, we argue so much about, well, what's this baptism all about that John was, was doing? Was it the same as Christian baptism today? Is this a different baptism? But by bickering over all that stuff, we're, we're completely missing the point of what's going on. You think of the symbolism of baptism. What's happening there? It's a going through the waters. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 10 as a passing through the waters just as Moses and the Israelites passed through the Red Sea. It's the exodus again. That's what Mark's trying to help us to connect this story back to the Exodus story. And he's telling us the Exodus is being played out again. It's a new Exodus. God's doing a new thing, and he's delivering his people all over again. John's in the wilderness. He's preaching a baptism, symbolically reenacting that Exodus experience, that experience of new beginnings. And that baptism, what does it signify? The forgiveness of sins. That's not just a personal, moral, my forgiveness, your forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins is what Israel longed for. So that as a nation, they could be forgiven. They could be set free. This was the precondition of their return from exile, that God would forgive them. God would comfort them and heal them and restore them. And here's John in the wilderness preaching baptism and telling people that now there is forgiveness of sins available. It's the new exodus. It's happening all over again. And so in verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. What's happening? The nation of Israel coming back into the wilderness, back to where it all began. Just as Israel went out into the wilderness the first time, led by Moses, Begun as a nation, now you see all the people of Israel, which is probably a generalization, but all the Judean residents coming out into the wilderness to be recreated, the beginnings of a new people, the emergence of a new family of God. Can you hear the overtones of the Exodus story? Can you hear what Mark's trying to do? Make as many connections as he can. It's the Exodus, it's the Exodus, it's the Exodus all the time. This is what you were expecting. So the whole nation of Israel come out and confessing their sins, they're baptized by him in the Jordan River. And then in verse 6, you get this bizarre description of John's appearance. He wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And why on earth did he do that? Why on earth is that possibly important and significant? Because when you go back to the Old Testament, this is exactly how Elijah dressed. This is exactly how the prophet Elijah was presented. Well, who cares? Why is that important? Because, again, we don't have time to go into it in depth, but when you get to these promises in Malachi, God says that the one I'm going to send ahead of me to prepare the way for my own coming is going to be an Elijah. That's how he's described in Malachi 4. Very last two verses of the Old Testament, you read them, talks about this Elijah who's going to come, not the actual historical Elijah, but an Elijah-type figure. He's going to be the forerunner. And Mark is unmistakably saying, it's this guy, it's him. He's the one. He's the forerunner. He's come. And what does that mean? Only that the very presence of Yahweh is close behind because he is coming to prepare us for the great and terrible day of the Lord, as Joel put it. The day of the Lord is about to break on the scene and John is bringing it about. 
And verse 7, here's John's message. He says, After me comes one who more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it's so important for Mark to, to let us know that John is not the main event. He's just the warm-up band. He's just the band that you go and see and get your places so you can see the real band and you don't really care about the band that's on early. You just want to see the good guys, but you're there anyway. So you just listen to the early band. You know how that works at the concert, right? You're with me? Yes. That's it. That's who John was. He's the forerunner. He's the, he's the opening band. He's the opening act, but he's only that. And Mark's only interested in John insofar as he points to Jesus and so far as he prepares the way for the coming of the Lord in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. And John's saying, what I'm doing physically, what I'm doing symbolically with water and with the sand of this desert leading you out to the wilderness, Jesus, the, well, God himself is going to come and do spiritually. He's going to do in an amazingly profound internal way of cleansing you. He is actually going to do with the Holy Spirit what I'm doing physically. And he's going to bring about the real new exodus the real return from exile. It is here and it's just about to come.